Is it conservatives, not the left, that is leading to the end of the era of interventionist dominance? Could that be? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. What do you think? With all the hundreds of billions of our tax dollars spent over the last few decades, has the result been greater or lesser security for the American nation? Is the way to prosperous peace through the predictable same old, same old pattern of violent attack followed by violent retaliation? Could it be that the old, long-established way of doing things, the U.S. as the one global superpower, America as the unquestionably essential nation, is no longer adequate or appropriate to meeting the new global challenges and opportunities of the 21st century? Could it be that, as our guest today writes in The American Conservative, the era of interventionist dominance is over? How likely is it that the new battle in the Red Sea and Yemen is going to serve American interests? Or will a military-industrial-congressional complex be the only real gainer? Could it be that more and more leaders on both sides of the aisle are considering that perhaps we've had enough and it's not working? Maybe it's time to stop seeing all world issues as a nail and all we have is a hammer. Could it be time? Our guest on today's Keeping Democracy Alive is Kelly Bokar Vlahos, who is editorial director of Responsible Statecraft and senior advisor at the Quincy Institute. Kelly was a contributing editor at the American Conservative, where her article is titled, The Era of Interventionist Dominance is Over, that first appeared. Thank you so much for being with us, Kelly. Oh, thank you for having me. There have been calls for peace throughout the 20th century, generally coming from the left. My first exposure to a peace movement was in the mid-60s, when those questioning our war in Vietnam were a very small minority. The most vocal initiators were the Quakers, the Friends Committee on National Legislation. The peace marchers were derided, sometimes as peace creeps. Kelly, historically in that time, it seemed the Republicans marched in lockstep. There was a bumper sticker, as I recall, that read, these colors don't run. And even today, that seems to be the dominant sentiment among Republicans. But you write about something happening, a shift. Your article starts by talking about Elliot Cohen. No relation. Who is he? What is he saying about the situation in Yemen and the volatility in the Red Sea? And most importantly, what's new and different about the reaction to his traditional knee-jerk enthusiasm for war? Well, you know, I <laughs> I don't think your audience will necessarily like it, but I think what we're seeing today is um, a real opening up of the anti-war sentiment or landscape on the right that had been, I would say, predicated by Donald Trump on his own campaign trail in 2016. He went out there and he for one, said right in the middle of a GOP debate that the Iraq war was a failure, that the American people were lied to about the reasons for going to that war, and that he would never again treat the U.S. military as policemen, that he had to disperse throughout the world to engage in not only um, you know, putting out fires, security-wise, but also nation-building 
And Republicans started saying, ooh, we can start talking about ending endless wars, too, and feel good about it and not be called weaklings by our, you know, the Republican Party leaders or defeat defeatists or whatever, you know, the charge has been against Democrats and anti-war activists for years. Now, I need to give all the credit, honestly, for building this momentum or movement to Ron Paul, because Uh. Ron Paul is a Republican. Ron Paul, when he was in office, ran for president. And he ran against the war in Iraq. He ran against the global war on terror. He made all the arguments that are salient today, that the more that we we uh, use uh, our hammer to go after every nail, the more terrorists that we're creating in the world and the, yes. and the more harm and the less safe that Americans are. And he made those he made those very arguments in 2008 when he ran for president in 2012. And he was booed off the stage in 2008. When Rudy Giuliani went after him, you know, basically demanding that he apologize for saying that our bombs in the Middle East were going to have blowback. And so I think what happened was, you know, uh, Ron Paul started a movement, but it was mostly among uh, libertarian conservatives and the Mm -hmm. libertarian right. And then Donald Trump made it more of a, a mainstream conservative populist message. And it's still reverberating. So you have a lot of members of Congress now who are talking in terms of getting our troops out of Iraq and Syria, not escalating war in Iran, um, you know, uh, uh, defying the, the Biden administration's knee jerk reactions to the Houthi attacks, demanding congressional authorization for these wars ahead of time. So I do think that Donald Trump helped open the space. Um, and that is why you're seeing a more populist, conservative, uh, anti-war message. And you see that right in, 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 in the visage of Tucker Carlson, who's been out there for the last week, you know, basically saying that um, senators uh, and politicos like Lindsey Graham, who are demanding that we bomb Iran, are effing lunatics. Those are his words, not mine. <laughs> so, yeah, something has shifted, and I'm not. I don't think it's a bad thing. Uh, it doesn't sound. Like, who who to thunk it? Who to thunk it that the uh, yeah. the Trumpist right might be the friend of uh, peace movement? Uh, it, yeah, it's it's yeah. incredible. You know, in the repo- you know about conservatism, having written for the American Conservative and being part of that. The Republican ranks, there's still conservatism, not much of it, it seems, and neoconservatism, the neocons. Just briefly, if you could explain the differences, and where has the political power been in the past few decades between those two? Well, I mean, the the political power, and I'm I'm actually writing a story about this, writing an essay about this for the American conservative, the the political power, particularly foreign policy, 20 years ago was with the neoconservatives. And neoconservatives are are really um, converted Republican conservatives who were Mm -hmm. liberals. They, uh, many of them Democrats, and we're talking in the 60s and 70s, who by the 80s were very disappointed with what they thought was a weak foreign policy, was uh, the succumbing of like Cold War malaise. And they had uh, shifted their political allegiances um, and support to Ronald Reagan, who they felt was um, had, had better reflected 
a, a stronger, um, more active uh, foreign policy prescription on the on the world. They liked what he was doing. They felt like you, the United States uh, had a moral obligation to uh, not only spread, you know, its values and interests throughout the world, but if, if need be, do it at the point of a gun, mm. uh, to use the U.S. military to promote democracy. Um, they and, and to this day, you will hear a lot of them talk about if the United States doesn't lead a liberal world order um, and doesn't maintain it through strength, that somehow like the world will crumble. Uh, as Robert Kagan of the Brookings Institute, chief neoconservative, uh, has said that it would revert to a quote-unquote jungle if oh. the United States doesn't maintain oh. U.S. primacy. So these uh, purve- the purveyors of this particular foreign policy um, ideal, you know, have uh, had, like I said, shifted their support and uh, alignment with the Republican Party during the Reagan era, and and only got stronger as many of their purveyors uh, worked in. Congress at the not in Congress, but in the upper echelons of the United States government. So by the time that H.W. Bush was in office, you had people like Dick Cheney, like Paul Wolfowitz, and mm-hmm. others who you know were building um, a policy. I would say a, a policy strategy as, that would project U.S. power. Mm throughout the world to maintain what they not only homeland security, but this, you know, what they had envisioned was, you know, the security of the, of the planet. And the apotheosis of this was nine 11 and the reaction to nine 11, because up until nine 11, this particular group, which you would, you know, peep your, maybe your listeners would recognize the name, the project for a new American century. Many of these uh, uh, neocons have been signatories to this particular group, would put, which put out a manifesto for all the things that I just talked about, but then actively lobbied the Clinton and administration to depose Saddam Hussein. That regime change was essential mm. in, re, re, in uh, establishing peace in the Middle East. And so 9-11 allowed this grouping of neoconservatives basically to make their case even more strongly. It was their Pearl Harbor, if you will, in which they were able to enact a lot of these policies, which meant building up the military, uh, you know, getting into multi-front conflicts, including the war in Iraq to create this global war on terror in which the United States expanded its footprint into all areas of the Middle East and North Africa. And to this day, we are feeling the repercussions of this. But along the way, the neocons, in, in, in addition to being discredited because of the failures of the war on terror, hate Donald Trump. And so when they saw the writing on the wall that the American people had enough of this adventurous, uh, expeditious uh, U.S. primacy prescription, they shrunk and that Donald Trump was leading that on the right. You know, many of them have gone back to being Democrats or at least 
uh, Republicans in name only. Uh And so they still exist there when I'm talking like Bill Crystal and David Frum and to a certain extent, Nikki Haley and some of these others. But they are they, they have sort of, you know, in a turn of fate have been sort of cast to the margins of the conservative world and uh, exist only as never Trumpers, I would say. Um, are they still powerful? Maybe in a certain sense that they, they still have cachet in the Washington establishment. Uh, but in terms of like electoral politics uh, and the spirit of the age, right. hmm, not as much as 20 years ago. Oh, interesting, because it used to be that uh, both both people, you know, the Republicans and Democrats would do anything to avoid looking weak. And mm-hmm. and you point out that our retired generals who get a lot of TV time and are want to insist over and over again that no matter the case, we must meet the enemy with violence. Quote, the only right. language she knows. And your research shows that more and more right-leaning realists aren't afraid to use the word restraint. Boy, you wouldn't have heard that uh, just in recent times. Aren't they afraid that that looks naive or weak, just using the word restraint? Well, I, I think this is, you. I agree with you entirely. And as somebody who works in this world at Quincy, you know, we're transpartisan. So I have like... Uh, We'll say one foot in a in different camps, and I I would say that there those restrainers on the right who have been very forceful about changing U.S. foreign policy and and to be less uh, militaristic and see it in terms of U.S. interests. Is it in our interest to maintain U.S. Primus, military primacy overseas? You know, they take a lot of slings and arrows because it's a hard habit to break where you have a, uh, the, the, the right uh, right wing Republican establishment that had been formed over decades of the Cold War and then the global war on terror to suddenly start speaking in a different language about, about our role in the world. But I'm heartened that I feel like that the number of people who are using the word restraint and who are more skeptical of this reflexive need to fight wherever and to respond with force no matter what. Mm. I feel like that number of people is growing. And like I saw a quote before I got on your show today from Joshua Hawley, and I don't have it in front of me, Senator Uh Uh uh, from Missouri. And he was saying something to the effect that, you know, we didn't need these troops in Iraq and Syria any longer. Um, I, Josh Hawley and some of these other populist senators and members of Congress, or you have J.D. Vance, also senator from Pennsylvania, have been more skeptical. And they have qualified their skepticism by saying, listen, this isn't about being weak. This is taking maybe a more Jacksonian approach where we have a strong national defense we don't ignore um, our obligations in that regard. We're not going to weaken the U.S. military. We will build up our forces, but do it in the classic for national defense. And so if we get punched in the nose, we're going to punch back, but we're not going to go out in search of monsters to destroy. Mm-hmm. We're not going to spread ourselves through thin, having a footprint in every continent with forces out there that end up getting involved in other people's battles 
that end up causing more trouble, more terrorism than than before we had that footprint. You know, we're looking at all the failures of the last 20 years and saying, right. hmm, maybe those policies didn't work out very well for us. <laughs> that doesn't make us weak. It just makes us smart and more intellectual than the other side, which is just gotten so reactionary and doctrinaire about the whole thing. And you talk about the other side. And before we move on, I just for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Kelly Bokar Vlahos, who is senior advisor at the Quincy Institute, talking about an article she's written on the American conservative. Yes, you're hearing about the American conservative here on this left-leaning show. <laughs> Her t- the title of the article is The Era of Interventionist Dominance is Over. And... I am a Democrat, big surprise, but it's been frustrating. Over the last 50 years or so, Democratic Party leaders have been highly motivated and eager to run away from any risk of being labeled peaceniks. I think that's kind of the McGovern syndrome. He did not exactly win back in 1972. But what has been the effect on American foreign policy and in terms of our actual national security with the Democratic Party candidates all like lining up? Oh, no, no, we're tough. We're tough. We're tough. You know, what's been the effect of, of that uh, you know, the neoliberalism, which seems rather similar to neoconservatism in terms of, you know, having a, a heavy footprint all over the world. I mean, in one word, I just say disaster <laughs> because it, no, because I feel like you can't go. There, there's no way forward. You're mirrored in the status quo. And so there are a lot of bright ideas out there on the left and the right about how we could reform our foreign policy to be less militaristic, more pro-democracy. Um, we could engage the world uh, in positive ways. We're not talking about retreating from the world. We're not talking about isolationism. We're talking about a less militaristic approach that's, that's not only based on United States interests, the interests of Americans, but wanting to make a safer world. We don't feel safer today than we did 20 years ago or 30 years ago. So how how do we move forward away from the rut that we're in? Mm. Unfortunately, the Democrats, for all the reasons you just mentioned, are too scared to make that change. And they've been conditioned. So it's not even that they're just scared and they're like just going with the flow. I feel like a lot of Democrats in the leadership today actually believe the malarkey. Like they believe that we have mm. to be tough. They don't want to be seen as weak. And they, they actually believe in the military, the, 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 uh, in emboldening the military industrial complex on every level. Mm-hmm. And we can get into that because a lot of it is the byproduct of the military industrial complex, the revolving door, the deference to, uh, military officers, the influence of the defense industry on members of Congress and, and policy. I mean, it's it's created a, a thicket, but also it has reinforced this orthodoxy about a, you know, militaristic um, yeah. U.S. primacy that needs to be maintained 
So I don't even know if you can even parse out the Democratic leadership from, say, the Republican leadership at, at this level. I feel like there are gradations of how hawkish they talk, the particular rhetoric. You know, maybe the Republicans try don't try as hard to infuse their arguments with humanitarianism, whereas the Democrats say they have to be forceful because of uh, moral uh, imperatives. I mean, those are the differences. It's in the rhetoric, but it's not in the uh, decisions that they make or the judgments that they make on a daily basis. And why, why I say a disaster is because the people that really are fighting for change are so at the margins mm. on both sides of the aisle. Does that reflect the American people? No, I believe the American people don't want to go to war. They don't want us to mess in other people's business. They're tired of these entangling alliances that they don't really understand. They're tired of being left out of the decision making so that, you know, they're just patted on the head and say, well, this is how you have to think about this geopolitical situation. We've got it in hand. Go on to your Taylor Swift and your McDonald's and all that stuff and your shopping. They're tired of that. But unfortunately, when they send these members to Congress in Washington, they get sucked into the vortex mm -hmm. of the military industrial complex, the blob, as we call it. And then you never hear from them again until it's election time and they need your vote. And, you know, I, I'm curious, the main goal of every elected official is to get reelected. That's just, I mean, that's just, you know, that's the reality. Do anything to get reelected. And the turmoil in, among Republicans in Congress is becoming more intense uh, with each side digging in. And it used to be that one had to look, as, as we've spoken about, super tough. Money from military was absolutely sacred. You can't even think about uh, talking about not uh, uh, worshiping the military uh, and our foreign policy. Questioning that, <gasps> you can't question our military policy. Are we coming to a point, you know, as 2024 goes on, where it may serve their reelection interest to call for restraint? Mm. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, this is the thing, and, I, and again, I know this is going to be unpopular in the show, but I feel like the right, they're actually making strides in that direction. Mm -hmm. So, for, ex for example, we had a story up at Responsible Statecraft yesterday by a progressive activist who's very upset and impassioned that he doesn't see enough grassroots activity pushing back on uh, Biden's policies on Israel and Gaza. And he's concerned because he says and that it, it and, 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 and furthermore, that there hasn't been more active uh, pushback against what people are feeling is this establishment push for war with Iran after our, our unfortunate incident with our three right. soldiers being killed in Jordan there. You know, the voices that we're hearing in the mainstream are all about punching Iran back uh, teaching them a lesson, you know, violence must be met with violence, right. you, you you know the rest. And he was like, where are all the progressive groups? Why aren't they lighting up the phones, the switchboards at the Capitol? He said, why is it that the voices that we're hearing are from the right, like Tucker Carlson, just going right out there within 24 hours, calling Lindsey Graham an effing lunatic. And part of what he's saying is a valid 
critique or concern that I feel like the folks on the right feel emboldened and maybe because it is from Trump and Trump making it okay to talk about restraint and talking to your enemies and, you know, whether or not Trump followed through in any effective fashion is another conversation. Um, But I do feel that he's right in a way that you had Vivek Ramaswamy during the Republican debates calling Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis warmongers and neocons. And I mean, maybe he went too far by, you know, basically saying that these two people want to send your children to die in Ukraine. But I, I mean, short of Ron Paul and I love Ron Paul, uh, And I was so proud of him when, you know, he spoke the way he did during those Republican debates years ago. Short of that, there haven't been any Republicans who get up and say things like that in a Republican debate. Calling Nikki Haley corrupt because she went to work for a defense contractor, um, I believe it's Boeing. I don't want it's Boeing or Lockheed where she went and sat on a board to make tons of money. I mean, this isn't something Republicans usually care yeah, about. For sure. or, or, I mean, we care about it. And there are plenty of people on, on the right side of the dial, like, you know, outside of, you know, the D.C. swamp that care about it. But you usually won't hear it in official Republican events. So, yeah. Yeah, something some, something is happening here. Something for sure is happening here. And as as you say, that that the uh, the chorus for uh, for uh, is, is growing. The uh, the this growing chorus of conservative restrainers pushing into the mainstream. And I think mm-hmm. that's a really there's something new under the sun here. It's so rare that that happens, but. Uh, you know, we had this rather disastrous war in Vietnam uh, that uh, we didn't win. And, th- th- you know, had we, we're now doing business with them, and we could have been doing business with them ever since they kicked the French out in 1954, but we chose not to. And America didn't right. understand the motivations of the Vietnamese at the time of our ramping up the war against them in the mid-60s. Now come the Houthis attacking shipping destined for the Israeli state. Aside from the fact that they've attacked shipping, does our foreign policy establishment have a good understanding about who they are and what motivates them? I mean, what should they know? How is the U.S. support for the Saudis a vital factor that's being left out of this discussion? I mean, this is such a mess. And I, I wish I had, I mean, there, there are much better people to talk to about the Houthis than I, because I'm not a Middle East expert or regional expert. But as an editor who has engaged these experts to write stories for me at Responsible Statecraft, I I have a little bit of a background. And I also have been, you know, active in writing and being in coalitions on ending the war in Yemen for years. And again, uh, a coalition that I had sat on, I want to say it must have been three or four years ago now, because it was when I was with the American Conservative, was a coalition of left and right groups that wanted to end our involvement and and Yemen. And I think this was a sleeper issue Mm. at the time because people were going about their business. The the war in Iraq had, and I put this in quotation marks, had been largely over. They didn't realize that there Mm. was this, uh, these operations going on in Yemen. Well, what were they about? I mean, we had taken sides. 
against uh, the Houthis who had deposed the the president that we liked and mm-hmm. and the Saudis liked. And, and so it all shook out and that the Saudis and the United Arab Emirates uh, wanted to depose or, or keep the, the Houthis from taking control. Uh, they had take, already had taken control of Sana'a and that the capital city. And that was in 2015, I believe. And then we saw it as our uh, moral and strategic duty to lend uh, our intelligence and our firepower to the to Saudis and the UAE to um, depose the Houthis. And so, you know, basically we were engaged, many will say cold belligerents mm-hmm. and in the, a war that ended up creating one of the biggest humanitarian disasters of, of the early century. And we had active efforts on Capitol Hill to stop this saying, listen, we can't keep giving them the weapons to bomb civilians and create this humanitarian disaster. And not only did the, the, the Obama administration resist that, but the Trump administration resist that they had bipartisan buy-in, you know, to, to end the war. And so there's a lot of bad blood there to begin with. Now, they were all, you know, they were on the road to ending the war in a ceasefire when all of this happened, oh, when Gaza right. happened, October 7th. So these Houthis are not only super resilient, everybody that I've talked to say they're some of the best fighters in the world. They, they mean what they say. They, you know, they, they are targeting what they see as Israeli-linked merchant vessels, Mm-hmm. And that would include, you know, American uh, Navy, but they've mostly been attacking uh, merchant vessels and they're not going to stop until the war in Gaza stops or there's some sort of ceasefire that allows humanitarian aid to get the, in there. So, you know, you could say we, we've almost created the situation ourselves. Um, oh, I, I have to go back. One of the reasons why these administrations resisted stopping the aid to the Saudis and UAE to to pummel the the Houthis in Yemen was that the Houthis have backing from Iran. And every administration in my lifetime has seen Iran as some existential enemy that Mm -hmm. it must stop. Mm -hmm. And so they saw the Houthis as a proxy. And so therefore the, the Saudis and the UAE are our proxies. And if we didn't, if we stopped funding, that that somehow Iran would win the day, and so that's all part of the backstory too. Mm. So it's it's a it's a giant mess. All I'm saying is that it, it, this this Houthi situation didn't just occur in a vacuum after exactly. October seventh. Exactly. And let's put it this way: if if after nine years of them taking hits from the UAE and Saudi with U.S. firepower did not stop the Houthis. I'm thinking that this is not going to be over with just our, our airstrikes on their positions or us thwarting their, their missiles. They're, they're in it for the long haul, too. And so we have to be ready for that. Motivation. They are highly motivated, let's face it. And they've been and yeah. the more they get bombed, the more motivated they get. Bombed by the Saudis. And one can understand that. The the Yemen 
uh, pe- people of, of, of Yemen have been, I mean, they've been put through t- terrible situations, near famines, if not real famines. I don't know, but they, it's motivation. And uh, right. I, I will tell you, we mentioned George McGovern a little while ago. I worked for Senator McGovern in 1984. He came in a strong third in the Iowa presidential primary. Hard to believe that was 40 years ago, but in fact it was. <laughs> he observed, and I'll never forget, I was going around with Senator McGovern at the time and, and recording his speeches and playing them over radio stations. He said, we can do more to dry up the swamplands of despair that breed communists this was 1984, now you could say the word terrorist. We could dry up the swamplands of despair that breed terrorists with our medical, agricultural, educational aid, then with all the military hardware and a vast arsenal, and do it far more cheaply. I believe he was absolutely spot on. And I wonder if that position, uh, it, it would save a heck of a lot of money. If, I don't know if if it's if they're starting to be uh, as your article quotes Eric Sperling, uh, who is executive director mm-hmm. of Just Foreign Policy, talking about a principled left-right pro-restraint coalition that includes obviously Rand Paul on the right and Bernie Sanders mm-hmm. on the left. Right, Perhaps, right. Are there other conservative Republicans starting to join that club, and does their position require less courage than it may have in recent years? Yeah, I mean, I do think it requires less courage. And like I said before, there there seems to be uh, motivated members who uh, who are very good at ignoring the slings and arrows that might come their way. So they 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 feel like they have the righteousness to do this and. And the more that they do, and I'm looking at people like you mentioned, uh, Rand, or Rand Paul right. and Mike Lee, Mike who Lee. I just, we just had a Q&A with him on our site, you know, about, you know, he's, he is demanding that Biden come to Congress uh, before ah. going to war with Iran. And he's joined up with other Democrats like Tim Kaine. Uh, there are four demo- there's four senators all together that, that sent a letter to President Biden going, you know, these airstrikes in, in Yemen. Um, you know what? You, you need to come to Congress, you know, and uh, citing the Constitution. So and, and a lot of those relationships were already happening during, like I mentioned, the, the, the Yemen war. There have been a number of bills and resolutions over the years that have tackled these issues that have gotten bipartisan buy-in. I'm, I'm thinking of efforts to bring our troops home um, from uh, from Somalia, from other parts of uh, right. Africa that have been doing counterterrorism operations there, efforts to get our troops home from Iraq and Syria, um, efforts to end the authorization for the use of military force. Right. The, 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 two, the two AUMFs that have that have been uh, in act have been active since 9/11 and the war in, in Iraq that are still being abused and used by administrations to, to continue, you know, conflicts wherever they want. And they're using those as justification. That has bipartisan buy-in. So there are a lot that you know, a lot of efforts that a, a minimal. I'm not going to overblow this. A minimal number of Republicans, Democrats mm-hmm. have reached across the aisle and said, we got to work together to do this. It's, it's heartening to me, but what's the downside? 
downside is like pure politics gets involved, mm-hmm. electoral bo- politics gets involved, and all of a sudden, you know, if your guy is the president, somehow you don't have as much energy to contest you know, that military footprint in Africa all of a sudden, Mm. or, you know, uh, the war in Yemen, we saw a lot of drop off in the energy from Democrats during the the Biden administration for ending the war in Yemen. Uh, I wasn't entirely surprised having been working in this town for 25 years, but all of a sudden you didn't want to hear too much about that from the Democrats. They were deferring more to the administration that said that we need to keep our hand in. And it happens on the Republican side, too. Republican is in the White House and all of a sudden uh, we don't really care as much about like uh, executive power and uh, the the White House not going to Congress for right. approval. You know, so you, the politics rears its egg, ugly head. And I think it's gotten much worse as the country has become more divided. And there are plenty of people that I mentioned that have stuck to their principles and will continue to work across the aisle. But I feel as we get closer to this election, the 2024 presidential election, you're going to see more resistance uh, to working together, unfortunately, which who does that benefit? That benefits the elites in Washington, uh, the war party, as we call it. Mm -hmm. And, as long as they can keep us divided, we don't have that coalescing power to really to really make a difference. Another group that I, I would mention here, uh, which even surprised me, has been the Heritage Foundation has come yeah, out uh, very strongly. Now, it might be an a la carte situation. <laughs> They've been very vocal about Ukraine and uh, finding diplomatic pathway out of Ukraine, limiting more of the aid there that's prolonging the war. They've talked a lot of restraint language over the last year. That's, like I said, that's even surprised me. It's one of those things where I'm kind of looking back, taking a step back and saying, is this, is this the new reality? Because when you have a, a group of as influ- influential as the Heritage Foundation, which has been like the firmament of Republican politics since the Reagan era, all of a sudden being skeptical about endless wars and uh, the military industrial complex. That, I mean, that would be great if that signals something like a new era. Or is it pure politics? I don't know. And, you know, so I, I think there are promising signs that we, we can look at for for this right-left coalition, and I, that's what I do every day in my job at Quincy is, is to promote those relationships. But, um, you know, it, it is hard with the, with the, the current um, polarization of our uh, politics. Yeah, it's, it certainly uh, is a, an interesting time. And again, getting reelected is the motivation uh, of every member of Congress. And I don't find too many Americans, when they vote, they don't think about the uh, Supreme Court, although it's hugely affected by their vote, and they don't think about foreign policy in general. But it is... It's, it's something that's exceedingly important. I mean, if, if you've ever uh, met with people whose 
family members have been killed or injured in a war, that's not something you forget very easily. And it's, you know, it's some tough stuff. And is it is it worthwhile? Uh, you know, we give them all this thanks, but mm, I don't know. And we're talking here about conservatism and the, the Republican Party, the various different parts of the Republican Party. Your article appeared in The American Conservative. It's not exactly a left-wing organization or publication. Let's look at what conservatism has to say, conservatism has to say about war-making and how foreign policy decisions must be made. I mean, the last time we went to war legally was in 1941. So what's, what, what, what is the correct, <clears throat> what entity is the correct one to choose and direct actions? Is it the president who can just do this and as he has done over and over and over again ever since 1941? What, what is the real conservative position on how war-making decisions should be made? Well, I mean, the conservative position, at least the constitutional conservative position on this, is that the war-making powers reside with the Congress. Now, I don't think anybody argues that the president has the ability or the authority right. to stop or engage the United States military in the moment of an imminent danger. I think we're constitutional conservatives have gotten very upset uh, and, and including all the way up until today with the strikes in Yemen is that the executive has taken a wide uh, berth on what imminent is and what imminent danger. Uh -huh. And they've taken the powers that are inherent in the constitution and just interpreted it any way that he wants. And that has gone all the way back, like you said, uh, to World War II. So it's not something, it, this isn't a modern problem. This has been happening uh, since, uh, for decades, but I think has been more exacerbated after the global war on terror or 9-11, in which the United States has been at war in some degree for 20 some odd years. And the American people have sort of lost the thread of mm. what has been authorized, what is a war, what's not a war, uh -huh. what's just a counterterrorism operation, what's a peacekeeping mission, what's nation building. And I think that's exactly the way the executive wants it. And so it's the interpretation of the war making powers from the executive have become more um, opaque uh, more bold, uh, more uh, taken their prerogative and interpreted it in ways that just that, that, that people like Mike Lee mm -hmm. say have completely warped the intention of the founding fathers and the Constitution. And so there's a real active debate. The, the problem is, is that once you elect a president and you put him in office, it's really difficult to um, check like the, the balance, the, the balance of power, the checks and balances or whatever you want to call it have have really gone off kilter. Mm. So it's difficult. So people will say, well, we have the War Powers Act, okay, mm. that was instituted after the Vietnam War. But there's so many loopholes there. Mm. And the, the subsequent uh, presidents, successive presidents, have basically ignored it when the Congress and has passed resolutions trying to check um, their, you know, the president's uh, authorization for military force, 
and either the presidents have ignored it uh that you know they they basically said that um use these maybe imminence cause but also the, the federal courts have made it very difficult uh there is a, there's veto power that the president has so even if the congress decides and gets together uh, the last word is with the president. So it's it, it's almost as though it is a paper tiger that was used to assuage the American public who were rattled from Vietnam and wanted to put some more checks and balances really? so that another war like that would not happen again. But the way it was designed didn't allow for real, like, teeth. You know, there no, there's no real impact. So what constitutional conservatives will tell you is the only way that Congress can take back its authority and actually stop these wars is to literally cut off funding. Yes. For so, and that's where the rubber meets the road. Mm -hmm. So you have all these constitutional conservatives. Only a few would actually follow through with that. I feel like this is a a, a great. Uh, intellectual exercise, but does Congress really want to mm. go that go nuclear yeah. on a president and say, well, we're just not going to let you fund these strikes in Yemen. We're not going to let you send any more weapons to Israel. You know, we're not going to let you. I mean, they are cutting off money for our Ukraine. So I guess in, in sure. that regard, something's happening, but Really, they, they have to take their powers back and they actually have to exercise and not just talk about it. Uh, but so it'd be nice if they did that. And, and Bernie Sanders is talking about cutting off funding for, uh, you know, supplying uh, weaponry to uh, the Israeli uh, IDF uh, that's uh, made this incredible war on, on Gaza that is only going to make more terrorists in the future. Mm -hmm. I mean, any baby that's born uh, and survives this is going to become... Oh, my goodness. Oh, it's just... <laughs> but yeah. you write, and for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Kelly Bokar Vlahos, senior advisor at the Quincy Institute, who's written an article also on the American conservative titled The Era of Interventionist Dominance is Over. And you write, as a talking about conservative values here, and to me, conservatism means sticking with the Constitution. I mean, really. Beyond the constitutional question, it is critical to assess if such a course of action is in America's best interest. There's the Washington Times, not exactly a liberal paper, editorialized a few days ago, war declarations in these instances, the Red Sea, shouldn't be a problem. And here's the thing. The only, they say the only reason for Congress to duck responsibility is to engage in wars that are not in the public interest. Your comments on that, please. Can you, can you repeat the, the Washington Times position on this? I'm trying to, I just want to wrap my head around it before I comment. War <laughs> so they're saying, war, go ahead. The only reason for Congress in general, they're suggesting that if the Red Sea War is, has public support and is in the public interest, then there shouldn't be a problem in getting a declaration of war if we're going to make war. That yeah. he, They say, the, quote, the only reason for Congress to duck responsibility is to engage in wars that are not in the public public interest. 
I kind of think that's true. Otherwise, they yeah. <laughs> do it. I, I do, and I and I think that goes back to my wrap up of the last you know several decades. I believe that the the, the executive, the White House, whatever administration has power, has sensed that the American public is not necessarily on board. That they that they don't really know what they're doing. Um, they can't be trusted, and that includes their their elected officials to make foreign policy decisions. So they have patronizingly taken foreign policy out of the hands of the people. And I think that successive Congresses have gotten more and more conditioned to being treated like children and yeah. not being deferred to. Mm. And so you have this combination of members of Congress who don't want to weigh in they don't want to be on the record saying this is a good war, this is a bad war, we should be striking, we should not be striking. And I believe that the executive has taken advantage of that. And it doesn't, you know, it's by not even approaching the Congress. If it doesn't feel it has to, it doesn't. Like, I feel like they, they told key members of the key com- committees about the strikes on, a, on Yemen two weeks ago, like hours before those strikes were conducted. Those strikes had probably been in the plans for like a right, couple of weeks. Right. And they just gave a heads up to a few members of the key committees, like a few hours. So they don't even, they don't even regard or respect the Congress anymore in terms yeah. of like the, their plans. And so I, 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 I agree with you. I think if, if the if the administration felt like the American people uh, were on board, right. uh, supported, yeah, maybe they would go to Congress. But I just feel like the dynamic is is all screwy now. I feel <laughs> like there there are there there's no balancing there. There's no buy in by the American people, right. and this is a real problem because you know maybe thirty years ago there was this sense that we were on top of the world, you know, the, the, the iron curtain had come down, that we were virtuous, righteous, superpower. Uh, we were protecting democracy for the world. I mean, all of those things that the, the neocons wanted us to think about the indispensable nation. And right. I feel after 25 years, uh, two failed wars, um, the 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 the, uh, the lies that were exposed by our at least two presidents in these wars. I don't think the American people are 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 as sanguine and in support of every little thing that the United States that Washington is doing in our in our name overseas. So I think there's going to be a reckoning at some point. Boy, I would hope so. And yeah, it'd be nice if foreign policy had some degree of, of democratic participation with a small d that Congress were involved in it. And as the founders intended, uh, it, it, you know, in 1941, there was no problem getting a declaration of war because the people were behind it. And so it seems like the only reason not to have a declaration of war is because the people aren't behind it, and it's not yeah. working. It, it, it just 
I don't know how many people could say that we're stronger now, we're safer now, we're more secure now because of our policy of, of hitting everything, you know, as, as if we're a hammer and they're a nail and, you know, violence, violence, violence. I, it's, yeah. it's, not, it's not really working. And we're talking about political conservatism as well. And if it means anything, it surely includes fiscal conservative not wasting American treasure needlessly or with less than satisfactory results. I mean, that's conservatism being, you know, uh, conservative with our our money, with our taxes. And uh, how has our national debt been affected by what, as you referred to former candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, called toxic neocons? What about that aspect of conservatism, fiscal conservatism? I, yeah, I think that you see a confluence of the fiscal conservatism and the skepticism of the actual policies, our foreign policies that have sent our troops uh, abroad in, in search of, of monsters to destroy. So mm-hmm. I, I, I honestly, for the first time since I started working in this space, have seen more and more I would say uh, conservatives who maybe not naturally fiscal conservatives starting to question all of the money that we have poured into these military adventures. I think uh, a knee jerk reaction or default, if you will, uh, 10, 20 years ago was that we had to keep building up the, the military, that we had to be strong. We had to compete with peer competitors and that there, there, there weren't as many roadblocks to increasing the military budget every, and there still isn't. So I don't want to like be, I'm not just, I'm not under any illusion that that doesn't happen, but I'm seeing more conservatives say, hmm, we're spending all of this money on X weapon system. Let's throw out like the F-35. Yeah, the F-35. Bill, yeah. Billions of dollars. It's going to be a trillion dollars over the lifetime. And yet... It, it doesn't work the way we were told. Um, it's constantly uh, failing tests. Um, it's not the panacea. And if anything, it's actually going to be, um, it, it's going to be outpaced by a new technology mm. at, in, 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 at any moment. And for what? For what? For what? They look at, yeah, they look at the literal combat ship, another, another boondoggle costing tens of billions of dollars. They've built a number of these ships and they've already decommissioned several of them. Um, I mean, what does that tell you? And so is this making us safer? Is it making our military stronger? Is it, you know, is it resulting in a highly trained, capable military footprint? No, it's actually become... Uh, these massive boondoggles for the defense industry, right. which is making a lot of a money. Lot of money. And yeah. conservatives are going, well, I'm really for a strong national defense, but yet you're building all of these planes that don't fly and ships that you're decommissioning, but yet it's at the cost of training pilots, recruiting uh, keeping members of the military happy so that they don't leave after their four years. You know, there's something wrong within the ecosystem itself. And I'm hearing more and more complaints. And a lot of people who have been in the military, who've served us in the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, are the best voices on this. 
because they've seen from the inside the corruption of the military industrial complex. They see how money is being misspent. They've seen how uh, these programs are uh, basically built, designed for the defense industry to sustain business uh-huh. and not necessarily based on good strategy or capability. And what does it do? It, it, it eats out the confidence and the strength and the cohesion of the ranks of the, of, of the, the military forces, the people who are actually going to be fighting these wars have no confidence in their leadership. They have no confidence that the, the mm. planes that they're flying are actually going to work like the Osprey, which guys are oh, dying geez. out there. So I think this is a new era of um, criticism because up until this time, you'd have like pure fiscal conservatives who just wanted to keep uh, a minimal uh, uh, federal fiscal like imprint right. and anti-war activists and um, critics from the left who just wanted to reduce the size of the military and that was basically your your core constituency that was keeping a check on the on the military industrial complex. Now you have this other constituency, I think, that's a little different. And they're like, hey, we want a strong military, but what we got here is corrupt and it's a mess. And it's it's definitely not a good use of taxpayer money. And we want to we want to do it better, and that's a little different from the older critiques, I think. Yeah, but is. I'm not I'm not necessarily averse to that because I, I feel like we need a lot a lot of voices and a lot of buy in if we're going to actually put up a united front against uh, what's happening. Absolutely, absolutely. Something different, something new under the sun. Left-right coalition, people talking about real common-sense defense. What is going to work as opposed to just, you know, shoveling money at the uh, defense industry? Well, you, Kelly Bokar-Vlahos, it's been great having you here today. You're a senior advisor to the Quincy Institute. Can you suggest, at Quincy Institute, I highly recommend it. Can you suggest... Uh, what people can go to on the uh, on the web to uh, read more stuff from the Quincy sure. Institute. Sure. So I, I'm, first and foremost, I would love people to go to responsiblestatecraft.org, oh, yes, which too. is our online magazine. So whatever you're interested, whether it's a, a war in Gaza and Ukraine, military industrial complex, electoral politics, it's all there. And we have um, outside contributors as well as staff. But if you really want to get in the meat and potatoes of what Quincy's doing, like our reports and our brief and what we're all about, you go to uh, quincyinst.org, which is the institutional mm-hmm. website. And that has a ton of resources. I'm very proud of like the people that I work with because, you know, they could be at any think tank pushing out papers mm-hmm. and going on TV and doing the thing for the blob. And the people that I work with are very dedicated to like the principles that I that we are outlining here today. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's not, it, it's a challenge because being yeah. in Washington where the entire town is mobilized for the status quo, you know, it's, it's hard working in this, in this space, but I'm, I'm very proud that we're at least doing it. Well, <laughs> and I think people like us too. So. Oh, good. And it's, it's starting to move it. You know, it sometimes yeah. is a high price to pay to be paid for being ahead of the times, but that's right. <laughs> 
as we know. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today. Shed light in a very, very important area and uh, some degree of hope, dare I say. Thank you. Yes, thank you. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. And if you find the information valuable, your friends probably do too. Please ask them to also subscribe. It's on Apple, Spotify, Progressive Radio Network, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thanks very much.